Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is the Wicked South Podcast. Exploring the dark history of the Murdoch legal dynasty and fascinating criminal cases on both sides of the law. It's 1970. The tiny town of Fairfax straddles two of the poorest counties in South Carolina, Allendale and Hampton. It's a period of racial unrest. The nights are marred by vandalism, riots, and fire bombings. Then, on a fateful night in May, shots ring out. Screams pierce the darkness. A black teenager is dead before morning. His body lies near a white-owned store in a black neighborhood. Some say he was killed by ambush as retaliation for the shooting of a white man. Others say it was self-defense and protection of property. It took four years for indictments to be handed down to five white men, two of them prominent public officials, but only after a concerned citizen, the NAACP, state police, and the FBI get involved. These suspects became known as the Fairfax Five. But with Randolph Buster Murdoch Jr. as chief prosecutor, would justice be served in South Carolina's 14th Judicial Circuit? Hello, friend. The voice you heard there was, of course, of Michael DeWitt Jr., a journalist, storyteller, historian. Uh, I am Matt Harris. And Seton Tucker is here as well. Seton, we have a Facebook page for this podcast just waiting for him. Yes, you can find us on Facebook at The Wicked South. And some good pictures up there uh, with a little nod to your dad from the previous episode and his trip to Selma. Yeah, I got to see my dad in one of those pictures. I'd never seen that picture, so I thought that was really cool. I've got a lot of really great response to that episode. So uh, thanks again to Seton's dad. Let's get into this episode. Uh, Michael, start off by telling us about the Fairfax Five murder. I'd be happy to. And uh, Seton's dad was the star of last week's episode. Yes. We took a, a deep dive into a um, civil rights movement. And this uh, case is from the same era. It's a very interesting story from the, the civil rights era here in the Low Country. It started just before midnight on May 16, 1970. 18-year-old Wallace Yeomans was killed in a shotgun slaying in Fairfax as he was walking home from his girlfriend's house along US-321. That's the highway that goes through Allendale, through Fairfax, and on toward Estill. The killing was initially believed to be an ambush-style uh, killing in uh, reprisal for the the wounding of a white man, Herman Hare. He had been shot a week earlier, and that shooting had sparked racial unrest and, and violence all over Allendale County. But justice is a, is a slow, evasive creature in the 14th Circuit, as we're about to find out. Well, one of the articles that I was reading while researching this was 
in the Des Moines Times, they said that this was at random. These men had an agreement to shoot the first black man who happened to walk past this store. That's right. See, now I read that same article, and I think we're going to uh, dig a little deeper into that. But that came from a deathbed confession. One of the men allegedly involved basically said, you know, after this the shooting of a of a white man in their community, they uh, got together and said, you know, they were just going to shoot the first the first black person that walked by, and um, which is quite an unbelievable thing. Well, it takes a a long route to get to to that confession. It took a while for any arrest to even be made, as we mentioned the open. But let's talk about the SLED uh, investigation. No arrest, right? That's right. No arrest. Uh, so this happened in 1970. And after, you know, lengthy investigation, a couple of years, no arrest. Uh, meanwhile, the the local black community, the, the local NAACP, they're steady pushing police to uh, to investigate, to do something. Buster Murdoch basically said that, that he agreed with police. There just wasn't enough evidence to prosecute the case. And after, you know, a couple of years, the case was closed. Um, they pretty much said, you know, the locals said, hey, you know, we don't have enough evidence. You know, we're not we're not digging any deeper. But local black leaders and the media would not let the matter rest. Well, did you notice that the leader of the NAACP at the time was named George Jefferson? I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> He's moving on up. Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe we might date ourselves by by <laughs> saying George Jefferson. That. Yes, obviously very fishy that they're not digging up any arrest and even getting it in front of a grand jury, which is, you know, the old saying is you can indict a ham sandwich and they're bringing nobody before a grand jury until... Four years later, and that's when uh, witnesses are called. 39, I think, are slated to testify. Was there something that, a key moment that got it in front of the grand jury? Seton, I'm going to let you take that. I I know there was a series of articles uh, that ran over the course of a year, year and a half in the Charlotte Observer. Charlotte Observer, we've seen uh, them report on a lot of major crimes throughout the Southeast. They they were prominent in reporting on the, the Charlotte Strangler, which we mentioned in a previous episode. And I think they are a McClatchy newspaper. They're they're there with um, the State Paper and Beaufort Gazette, and just just a, a great publication. Um, and they take their duties seriously. But they ran a series of articles, but there was uh, more to it than that. I'm gonna let Seton kind of uh, explain this. Uh, this is the most amazing part of the story to me. Well, so there was a, a man named. Beekman Winthrop, and he lived in the D.C. area. He comes from this Winthrop family. They have banking wealth, and he is on vacation in Allendale County. They have a family plantation called the Groton Plantation, and a Groton. Plate, a Groton. Yes, Michael, you said you'd been there, right? That's right. Uh, part of it, and sorry for interrupting you. Part of it's in Hampton. Part of it's in Allendale. But it's a wonderful uh, plantation. Uh, along the Savannah River, and it's called Groton. And it, I guess it's 2,500 acres. And so this man, Beekman Winthrop, is there, and he's reading the newspaper. And he is saying it's 1972. He cannot believe this story and that justice, no justice has been done for this young man. So he kind of becomes obsessed with this. And um, he, he felt like it, it was his opportunity to step in and make a difference. And he 
interviews actually seven, 75 people um, in the local community. And he kind of, he puts together this report for the Justice Department, which after he submits the report, they reopen the case. In doing so, he spends, I think, close to $5,000 of his own money, which in today's time would be about Mm $36,000. And he had a kind of a rift with some of his family members over this. Um, He got a severe dressing down from his uncles who co-owned this family property with his father. And, you know, they just didn't really want him to get involved. And his wife is quoted in one of the articles that I read that, you know, they were uncomfortable at times. And he felt like people were just looking for him to make a false move so that, and in fact, he was at one point arrested for impersonating an officer and those charges were eventually dropped. But I mean, he, I think he caused quite a stir in the community with this. Of course he did. He was, he was worried about his safety. He was worried about that they would plant evidence or something on him. Like that's what they, the, the arrest of, you know, uh, uh, pretending to be an officer. So, when you're stirring the pot, man, you're stirring the pot on a case that obviously it appears no one wanted solved. There's going to be pushback. Well, and here he is, someone who is not living in this community full time. He says Yankee. he says he, yeah, he's a Yankee. He says he didn't feel like he was an outsider there since they did own this property. But you know, here's this rich guy who really I don't think had to work. In some of the articles, he played tennis and he. Did some nonprofit work, but you know you're, you're talking about a community that is pretty impoverished. And so, with his push and the media's push, which is all kind of tied together, the case eventually ends up in front of a uh, grand jury. The NAACP was also putting heat on the community. Talk about the resolution, Michael, that was put into place. Yeah, because of the articles in the Charlotte Observer and because of Mr. Winthrop's, you know, efforts to dig and expose uh, this story, Buster and Sled uh, started catching a lot of heat. They were accused of foot dragging. They were accused of of all kinds of things. And um, the NAACP adopted a resolution. They asked the South Carolina Attorney General uh, Daniel McLeod to appoint a special prosecutor to replace Buster. They didn't think he was a fair and impartial uh, prosecutor didn't think mm. he was interested in, in justice and was doing his job. Um, but that didn't happen. The attorney general left, you know, Buster is a powerhouse in the 14th circuit that would have uh, caused a lot of political waves and problems. So the attorney general just appointed some assistant uh, attorney generals from uh, other districts to help Buster with the prosecution. And, the case is finally, after four years, the case is brought before uh, the Allendale County Grand Jury. And the 39 original witnesses that were called, you know, a grand jury is, um, you, is, is it's a secret proceeding, uh, not open to the public. These people are called to testify, you know, in secret before the grand jury. And then once an indictment is made, then the trial itself is public. So 35 witnesses testified. Several said that five men were involved in plotting and executing the murder. Several witnesses said they witnessed the white men leaving the crime scene. And, um, you know, throughout the whole thing, uh, Buster is, is showing his typical disdain for the media. Let me, let me back that up. If the media uh, loves Buster, then he loves the media. But oh, when yeah. he's criticized, <laughs> he's, 
he's quick to attack with witty and, and powerful criticisms. And he actually sent subpoenas and summoned two Charlotte Observer journalists to testify because his quote was, they appear to know more about the case than the state law enforcement division and the FBI. Oh, geez. But, and that was obviously just a shot <laughs> at them saying, hey, you know so much, you come on down here and I'll uh, hear what you have to say. That's right. Typical uh, Buster style. And so it uh, 25 hours of testimony from the 35 witnesses you mentioned, they handed down five murder indictments. And they were pretty well-known local men. Tell us about those people. Well, there were five, uh, you know, all well-known, two of them uh, prominent. J. Blanton O'Neill Jr. He had been a magistrate in Fairfax since 1949, so he was a crony and a peer of Buster's. There was a former Fairfax police officer, Jerry Bird. Albert Arthur Cook, he was the Hampton man who owned the grocery store where Yeomans was killed. And there were two other men. I believe one of them was described as a construction worker, and I'm not sure what the other one did. I think the other was, one uh, was worked in the sawmill. Sawmill. There was one right. sawmill. There guy, was a yeah. sawmill worker and a construction worker. T. Preston Polk and W. N. Dugan Jr. And of course, after the indictments, O'Neill stepped down from his magistrate post, uh, pending the outcome of the case. And the media began calling these five suspects the Fairfax Five. It, it was shocking to me that. Many of these men were law enforcement and also made me question whether that was the reason why Buster didn't actively pursue these people. Sure, because you said they were buddies. and They, they had to have known, known each other. It's really sad that it took the pressure of all the, uh, the media and, and Winthrop, et cetera, to get this baby moving. And so the case, did it eventually go to trial, Michael? Yeah, it, it's like you said, there was a, a connection between these public officials. And Buster has been giving out some mixed signals to the media throughout the whole case. You know, he was criticized for not making earlier indictments. And he even said things to the media, you know, there isn't enough evidence. And how come when the white man was shot a week before, the Charlotte Observer didn't write about that, but now a black man is shot, and now they're all over it. So he oh, was geez. making some statements that kind of indicated a lack of interest or elite, or maybe even a direct interest in not prosecuting the case. I mean, even the lack of what appears to be empathy or care. And you, Seton, saw some things written about this, too. Some of the articles were talking about this tide of change that was happening with these indictments. For example, the Charlotte Observer said for the first time in anyone's memory, white men had been charged with the murder for killing a black. This is in the, this is in the 70s. That's insane, right? Yeah, it doesn't seem that long. I mean, it's awful. It doesn't seem that long ago. And there'd be more that would happen in this case with your newspaper that you currently work with, uh, Michael. That's right. On May 1st, 1974, the Hampton County Guardian learned and reported that three witnesses were offered bribes, a total of uh, maybe $1,500 in bribes to either not testify or hold back testimony before the grand jury. Then one witness uh, told the Guardian that he had been harassed over the telephone by relatives of one of the defendants. Another witness told the Allendale County Citizen newspaper that a SLED captain threatened him with a lawsuit if he said anything bad about SLED and, mm. and made that his agency and his officers look bad. 
you know, by June of 1974, this thing is really escalating. It's really heating up. The FBI comes in and gets even more deeply involved. They obtained evidence and talked to witnesses. And the solicitor's office said, you know, they couldn't get this evidence from the local police and they were having problems getting this and that. So the FBI came in and, and sure enough, they got some evidence that the locals didn't have. And now the case is ready to go to trial in July of 1974. And one of the most interesting things I remember reading leading up to this was there's no air conditioner in this old courthouse, the old Allendale courthouse, which burned down not too many years ago and has been rebuilt. Um, no AC and it's July and you've got a crowded courtroom. So this thing is really going to be a hot and hotly contested trial. Well, Michael, in the Greenville News, they reported that the jury was kept in isolation. And I, I found these numbers kind of interesting. It was 8 to $10 for the meals for the jurors and the patrolmen, and that rooms cost them eleven forty four a night, which was $400 a day that they were spending on this trial for right. an impoverished community. That was a lot. I know we talked about that with the Murdoch trial, how much this cost Colleton County. So the jurors were staying in hotels? Yeah, they kept them completely isolated. Just to spin back a little bit, the fact that the, the locals said they couldn't get these witnesses to talk or evidence and the FBI blows in and gets it really sheds a very shady light on the role of, the, of SLED and, and Murdoch and all this in their investigation. Because come on, you can't, you've got all the connections in the world and you can't get people to talk or evidence. I, I call bull. Uh, the case now goes to trial and Michael, the, what does the jury start to learn about this? Well, the jury learned some, uh, some very interesting things during, you know, testimony during the trial. One of the witnesses, or at least one of the witnesses testified that two of the men had staked out the grocery store that night to defend it against racially charged vandalism and, we already heard that these men had allegedly plotted to shoot the first um, African-American person that came by. But um, apparently it was to also to protect against racially charged vandalism. And the shooting had occurred just seconds after Wallace Yeomans allegedly broke some glass bottles under the awning of the store. I don't know if that was part of the alleged uh, racial vandalism or, you know, just maybe young kids, you know. Um, sometimes young kids get into mischief and, and tear stuff up, whatever. But just seconds after breaking some bottles, he was shot and killed with a shotgun, which, you know, is a, is a horrible, ugly way to die. There was some some lies that uh, apparent lies that came out. Uh, O'Neill and Bird gave testimony during the trial that was in direct conflict with what they had previously told state and federal investigators. So which statement was the truth, you know? And then finally, during the trial, Murdoch gave some uh, conflicting kind of messages. You know, at one point, he's kind of hard and, and firm and, and like he wants a conviction. He tells the jury, I know how you can stop this from happening again. If you'll find these two white men guilty of shooting this black man, you won't have any more of this kind of shooting in, in Allendale County. But then he turns around later in his closing arguments and says, he doesn't think there was any conspiracy, and he doesn't think the killing was premeditated. He doesn't believe the men went down there that night with the intention of killing someone. So you're sitting on that jury. Um, you know, you're probably already under a lot of pressure. This, this is a very racially charged trial, um, and you're hearing these mis mixed messages. I don't know. It just sends uh, kind of a message like maybe the state's not too 
serious about, you know, getting a conviction in this case is what it sounds to me like. The prosecutor can't be kind of hedging their bets like, okay, well, maybe you don't want to uh, get them on premeditated. And also, just to spin back for a second, we don't know that he actually broke any bottles, right? That's all alleged. And that could be something that they're like, oh, just a reason. Let's talk about the confession. We have this kind of deathbed confession from this man, Carl O'Neill. And his brother was, Blanton O'Neill was one, was the former police officer who was charged in this case. And I guess they're questioning the validity of this confession because Carl O'Neill died of an abscess on his brain. And so they're saying that the illness accounted for the remarks he made prior to his death. That's right, Seton. The report uh, by Beckman Winthrop included that um, dimension of that deathbed confession. I think that was also in one of the articles by the Charlotte Observer. And that indeed uh, had a major impact in the the push to, that finally got these indictments. Not necessarily used in the course of that, but that just put the pressure on everybody finally because, I mean, this thing sounds so shady. Uh, definitely sounds like they were trying to just bury this indictment and this trial and the arrest of these guys. They were buddies with the established white folk. So the trial goes uh, four days, over 30 people testifying. And July 15th, 1974, four plus years later, after 80 minutes of deliberation, what happens, Michael? Well, you had a jury of seven black people and five white people. And you know, that kind of looks like it would be in, in favor of, uh, you know, a black um, victim, but it wasn't. They delivered a verdict of not guilty on the two on two of the men that were charged, Cook and Preston Polk. And I believe the other three were the charges were dropped after this. Really? Jeez. What happens? The, the verdict's read. What's the reaction? I can only imagine. Well, you know, uh, think about it. You're in a, you're in a hot courtroom. It's It's packed. You know, you've got. Um, you know, white citizens, uh, African-American citizens, and obviously, you know, the black community is is wanting justice for this young man's death. Um, you know, there's racial tension. Probably a lot of the white citizens are wanting this thing to go away. And when the verdict was read, there was just like a, a very audible gasp that, that rolled across the, the cramped courtroom. Buster, it did not take him long at all to publicly announce that he did not intend to uh, prosecute the other three, that he was going to drop all charges and all were acquitted. And just reading between the lines, I'm kind of thinking that's what he wanted to do all along. Yes. And But his claims were the charges were dropped because he had no evidence to back up murder charges against the other three and no evidence that they conspired to commit a crime. So the case is over. And... Seton may have uh, followed up on some of this. I do know that O'Neill was reinstated as the Fairfax magistrate. Remember, he'd been in office since 1949, and he was reinstated, and he petitioned the, the county for back pay that he missed while he was out of office uh, defending himself in the trial, but I don't think he got it. I think the state of South Carolina said, you know, you're not entitled to back pay. You weren't working, uh, you know, so tough luck. Okay, so let me uh, clear this up a little bit. So all five are indicted, but only two get tried. And it's because we believe that they are the trigger men. The other three don't even go to trial, right, Michael? 
That's right. Once those two were um, found not guilty, then, char then charges and indictments were, were dropped against all five, mm. and that was the only trial that was held in this case. That's that completely messed up, that's for sure. From what we know, that seems to be a lack of justice. Absolutely. It, it is really sad that there was no justice for this young man, but I also think we should talk about the power of the media and private citizens calling attention to issues that should be addressed. If this had happened in today's world, there'd be a podcast about it. There would be. <laughs> Some pressure on uh, the authorities to get something done. And uh, yeah, uh, th there's no question that even back then in 1970 through 74, the media played a large role in at least pushing for the indictments and not letting the case die. That's, that's what I'm thinking. I, I, I compare this very much to the, the current and ongoing Murdoch investigations. I'm seeing the, you know, powerful, well-connected people. I'm seeing uh, relentless media that is doing its job and going after them. And I also, I kind of compare that, uh, that concerned citizen to, uh, you know, modern day podcasters like you guys, there have been, um, cases all over the country where, um, podcasters have helped uh, solve cold cases or, you know, bring attention to cases and, and cause investigations to get reopened or even arrests to be made. So these are um, these are very good comparisons, in my opinion. Uh, we appreciate that you spend time with us. So grateful uh, about that. And you can find the Wicked South podcast on Facebook. Seton, you have a comment from someone? Well, we had a few comments from our last episode where my dad, Matthew Simbita, came on and told us his story about Selma. And so I loved to read those. And also had a, another comment that someone says, love the podcast, Seton and Matt, and now Michael do a great job. It's my walk and listen. And I get so into the story. Sometimes I talk back to y'all. <laughs> and my neighbors love me and may have me in a straight jacket soon, which is good because we are going to be doing, well, no, that's not good, but we're going to be doing an episode or two on Bull Street, which is the mental institution in Columbia, South Carolina. And so I think this could, you know, maybe she ties it together, ties it together. <laughs> uh, yeah. There'll be, there's a lot of horrible stories from Bull Street that we will have for you on an upcoming episode. Michael, you also have a, found a comment. Uh, on one of our reviews from Apple Podcast. That's right. We got a, um, a couple of, uh, of new reviews on, on Apple Podcast. And uh, I love Seton's uh, foreshadowing there of the, the straitjacket and Bull Street uh, stories we're going to be getting into real soon. But uh, on Apple Podcasts, we have already received 118 ratings and uh, wonderful 4.8 out of 5. Um, that's better than uh, than the reviews I got on Wicked Hampton County, which were not better at all. <laughs> better um, than impact of influence ratings. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on August 24th, uh, someone uh, says, great podcast, love the history, and great job to you three. And then this one is uh, even more interesting. Someone named Robert P. from the Broken System Podcast writes on the 27th of August. I didn't think Seton and Matt could get any better. Then they add in Michael, which makes this show a must listen to. Aw. Um, Aw. So, wow. Well, we, we, we love you and appreciate you too, Robert. Love it. Love it. And you've got uh, some of your journalistic work coming out soon, uh, Michael. You want to give a little plug to that stuff? 
We are, uh, when I say we, I, I write, I'm not just the editor of the Hampton Guardian. I um, write for the Greenville News, USA Today Network. And we are planning a series that's going to launch on September 18th. And I guess it was inspired by this podcast, inspired by the Wicked South podcast. But it's going to be called Before the Fall. And it's going to deal with several cases. Right now, we're planning four stories. But uh, the Murdochs as prosecutors, before the Alex Murdoch crime saga, before this fall from grace, the Murdochs were the pursuers of justice in the 14th Circuit. And at times, they... Uh, they brought about justice, and at times, like the story we just uh, uh, told you, uh, maybe justice might have escaped us. So we're going to deal in this uh, new series that will begin September 18th with Before the Fall, who and what the Murdochs were in the century before Alex Murdoch brought the whole dynasty down. And we're going to take a look at some of these um, these cases. Like We're going to touch on the pedophile preacher that we uh, had in a previous episode. We're going to touch on the Charlotte Strangler that we had uh, in the previous episode, along with other uh, killers and other criminal cases that are really fascinating. So I'm excited about that. And uh, no good deed comes unpunished. You know, you do a good job uh, uh, on on a podcast or in a book and the, the readers and the editors say, Hey, we want more. So I guess we should be doing a little bit more. <laughs> Rate, review, follow, share the episode. Also, when you if you're on, say, Apple Podcasts, for instance, you look in the show notes, you can scroll down there and you could make a donation if you'd like, as we're trying to get this up and running. So doing it for free at the moment. Actually, we're doing it for negative money. <laughs> 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 but it's okay. We love doing it. But uh, please uh, make a donation. We really appreciate it. And we'll talk soon, friend. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.